Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Green Room Podcast presented by the Handshake Agency. Happy Friday. Hope you're doing well. I'm not going to do a long-winded intro because my guest is going to be staring awkwardly at the camera waiting for me to get on with it. So, hey, Osher Ginsberg, welcome to the Green Room, sir. It's good to be here. It's a great green room to be in. Um, it's a very comfortable green room. Looks a lot like a spare room in my apartment that I'm living in here in Melbourne while I make the masked singer. Yeah. Okay. So let's start there. How is, um, how is lockdown 2.0 in Melbourne right now? Uh, look, you know, our, um, our medical um, officer at work, um, she said the other day, you know, it's not every day you get the chance to save somebody's life. And by doing what we're doing, we're saving people's lives. And that's, you know, that's the thing you really got to remember. I'm really grateful to work. Um, I don't think there's many other crews, if any crews in production anywhere in the state of Victoria outside of us. Um, I certainly know up in Sydney with Bachelorette, I'm pretty sure we're like the, the only reality show in New South Wales that's shooting a lot of people who are not working in my industry. So I'm really grateful, really grateful that we're doing work at the moment. Um, and I feel really, really safe at work. I really hope that everyone could feel as safe as I do when I'm at work. Thankfully, Channel 10, the network that um, commissioned the show and Warner Brothers, the production company that produces the show, they take it really, really, really seriously. I feel so safe at work. I feel as safe at work as I do in my own home. Um, the scariest thing for me is going to get groceries. <laughs> um, but, and, I, and I really hope that everyone can kind of just understand that if we're going to do anything, we're just going to have to do it uh, under these conditions. That's it. There's no normal. There's no going back to what it was. It's never going to be back to what it was. We just have to understand that, all right, we just have to figure out how to do what we do um, while we're, you know, physically distanced, wearing a mask, and you don't actually hand anything to anybody else. You wash your hands heaps. And like at work, like if someone, my audio guy, Josh, he'll hand me a mic and, you know, he'll, he'll have a hand, like a disinfectant wipe around the mic when he hands it to me because he's already wiped it down. And so when I touch it, I'm the first person to touch it. And that's how anybody hands anything to anyone on our set. And that's just how we're going to have to do things. Mm. That's just it. And people are just going to have to get their head around it. It's that or nobody goes back to work. So I'm really grateful that, you know, we are in this situation, I'm really grateful to be working. And I'm, and I'm really grateful that I feel so safe and we take it so seriously. Yeah, sure. It's a bummer because we can't have a mad 400 person throng audience but we're figuring out ways to do it you know and um i think the show's pretty good the show's a lot of fun how has the because obviously the mask singer is a very secretive production in the sense that even crew members aren't sure who, who's behind the mask no given the social distancing going on and on all productions live events any live event right now how has that altered the way things are running backstage as far as trying to keep all of this under, under wraps, but also maintaining social distancing and the correct protocols? Oh, it's quite, it's quite, I mean, everyone's in a mask. Me and the panel are the only people not in a mask. Us five are the only people in the room not wearing a mask. Everyone's got a mask. And the moment we're off camera wearing masks, um, that's just it, you know, and uh, people who, uh, you know, have to put a microphone on me or wardrobe and things like that. That's masks and face shields and gloves. And that's just how it is. That's just how it is. Um, I guess, you know, when you're making a show like this, there's always that separation of talent. Um, the, um, 
the, the people inside the masks are always kept away from everybody else anyway. And it's the same with bachelor and bachelorette, you know, they're all in a house together and that is a very controlled environment. Um, and we can really be sure as to who's coming and going from that place. So, um, we're able to adapt those productions to accommodate safety guidelines to make sure that everyone can keep safe and we can all keep working. Um, I'm really grateful that I don't make a living as a live performer. I'm really grateful that I don't make a living as a, someone who relies on live performer. Like I'm, you know, there's, you know, when this all first started happening in March or whatever, I would be thinking like, you know, there's, there's a, you know, photo of a, of a politician in a hard hat in high vis standing in some warehouse somewhere going, yeah, Aussie jobs, Aussie jobs. Like, but you know, it doesn't look as cool when that politician standing in front of a bunch of 40 year old super specialist lighting and pyrotechs in long shorts with a bunch of lanyards around their necks, you know, but like (laughs) there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are out of work, you know, people who work to make the live music industry and the live theater industry work specialized gigs. It means like they've dedicated their lives to it from probably when they were teenagers. They really don't know how to do anything else. It's like, but if you need to fly 27 tons of PA from a, a mega drone roof, they're the people you call, mm. but no one's doing that. So like far out, man, it's, it's really, it's a really tough time. It's a really tough time. Are you guys running on skeleton crew on set? Oh yeah. It's great. No clients. It's brilliant. I did an ad shoot, ad shoot the other day. No clients on set. They're all watching on a Zoom. They're all showing, showing on, a, on a remote. You know, they, they put an output out of the camera as a virtual camera and they all watch cool. on Zoom. But anyone that's ever done any kind of um, uh, production that has a commercial element to it, uh, any, it, it's always, you know, pe- people can want to come along and, you know, creatives want to come along yeah. <laughs> and be on set and offer, you know, or, you know sometimes. Um, uh, it can be a difficult experience. Um, <laughs> but no, everyone was on Zoom. I did this thing the other day. Everyone was on Zoom. And it was actually really good. Everyone's super cool because they've done all the pre-production work before. And I think that's uh, that's a real you know thing for me that's a, a really powerful is like if you if you and I've done it enough, even when I was doing voiceovers, you know, um, if the creatives were in the room and giving heaps of notes, it means that the script probably wasn't written and approved properly. Mm. You know, if the creatives are in the room and there's like, no, that's great. That's the take. It means it was written and approved and it was exactly what they wanted. You know, they've done all the pre-production properly. And the same goes as you get bigger and bigger. If you've got your pre-production hundred percent down, there's probably rarely going to be no, there'd be no notes from the network. You know, if you've got your pre-production and your tone and what you want your, your graphics to look like and where you want your character arcs to be and all that kind of stuff, if that's all locked down before you start rolling, you will probably will have very few words from the couch in the back of the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, there's anyone that doesn't have to be there is not there. Yeah. It's wild to me. Like even a show like the voice, which wrapped up a couple of weeks ago when they had those four finalists, they all had to film the winner quote unquote each. Mm. And then come time of the actual grand finale night, they all found out who actually won, but they had to do a whole spiel where you won, you won, you won. And the other three have to pretend they're excited about the fact that, They've won a lot. Yeah, yeah. We did that with Australian Idol, but you only saw the one that Guy Sebastian won. <laughs> I like That's it. not true. Or is it? We So what? We're recording this on a Thursday to go out tomorrow. We're two episodes in the season two of The Masked Singer. Mm. But Michael Bevan, we've had Mark Philippoussis. Where are you guys at in filming now? Do you know what episode you're up to? We're along the way. Yeah? Hmm. This is all stuff. You, this is all confidentiality now, isn't it? We're, we're along the way. We're still yeah. shooting. We're still shooting. In Melbourne. 
Yeah, I'm in Melbourne right now. I'm looking at a. I'm looking at a stadium. Uh, I don't know which one it is. It's probably changed its name a few times, but it's got a roof that opens. <laughs> with um, with obviously this being the second season, I think it was Ten's biggest entertainment show of 2019. Mm. The the idea of Mars Singer, I know it had been done in a couple of other countries. It got picked up in Australia. When you got approached to do a show like this, is your initial reaction "fuck yeah" or is it "hang on a second, this is this is wild"? It's always "fuck yeah." <laughs> <laughs> is there a shiny floor and a jib camera? I'm there. Yeah. Are you kidding me? The shiny floor is my natural home. Um, it's my spiritual home. You know, I, I, look, I, you know, I, I like to keep my ear to the ground. We are always on the lookout for formats that might work for people who don't understand how it works. It's essentially, if you think of it the same as a fast food franchise, you know, you're like, you know, there was a time when there was no Duncan, there was a, probably no, um, Krispy Kremes here. Right. But then, oh, here's this franchise that's kicking off. It's a business model that works. Here's a recipe. Here's, you know, the mechanics of it. Here's the marketing plan. Here's the, here's the, 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 the logos. Here's everything. Um, you pay us money for this franchise and you can open one in your city. Um, and, and you pay us a, you know, a license fee to use it. And that's, you know, boom, the, it's a proven model and it's a proven formula and it works. And that's, you know, it's the same business, right? So when we did something like, say, for example, Australian Idol, um, we, you get a massive big ring binder. It's called the Bible. And um, it's basically like, like, here's the format of the show. Here's how it works. Here's episodes one, two, three. Then you go to the top 40 and you go, you know, a week of that. And then you go, you know, top 12. And this is how the, you know, voting works and look for, and, you know, I think, I think one of the best ones I ever saw was um, for Undercover Boss. I don't know if you're aware of that TV show, mm-hmm. um, but it definitely had the look when you're casting it, we found the best model to be. Um, you need someone who's the, the protagonist, you need someone who's the antagonist, you need someone who's going to be very emotional, you need someone, you, every, every character needs somewhere to go. And so when you're casting it in the business that you're going into for Undercover Boss, you've got to find someone, you know, who's maybe a single parent, you've got to find someone who's, you know, waiting for a promotion, but hasn't got one. And, and, you know, these are the characters that have worked the best in the other countries that we've done it. And then you look at it and go, okay, we'll see if we can follow that. And then it kind of all unfolds under that umbrella. Sure, so sure. similarly, Mask Singer, we always keep an eye out, you know, as you, in my business, you're always like, well, what's working, what's working, what's working? Because in Australia, the risk is too great to try an unproven format in prime time. So you always want to try and find a format that is, um, yeah, I've been proven with the rating success overseas. I was aware of it. I was aware of this banana show out of South Korea. Going, what the fuck is this? And then I was on holidays with my family in Los Angeles and a dear friend that I worked on Live to Dance with when I was at CBS in America, James Sunderland says, you've got to watch The Masked Singer. It's absolutely amazing. And you've got to host it if it ever comes to Australia. We watched it that night. I'm like, holy shit, I have to be on this show. <laughs> so when Stephen Tate, who's the network executive at Network 10, who gave me my job on Australian Idol and The Bachelor, when he called me and said, do you want to do The Masked Singer? I think he was, he had, he had this of Masked Singer out of his mouth before I shouted, as you mentioned, yeah. fuck it. <laughs> like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm a hundred percent in for this show. Yeah, it's was just he, the best. Was he expecting that to be a battle initially? Did he think Osha's <laughs> gonna tell me not a Are you kidding me? He knows that he knows that I come to life when I've got a shiny floor under my feet. Yeah. Um shiny floor is a brand of television, it's a kind of television. Okay, there's reality television, there's there's shiny there's drama, there's sitcom, there's shiny floor, and this is a shiny floor show. Um and yeah, no, he he knows and um I'm really grateful for his support because um, he's just, he's one of the greatest television minds in this country. Um, 
I don't know just saying that because he's, you know, given me a career twice. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's really, he's a very, 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 very good at what he does. Yeah. And, um, it's just such a beautiful show and it's such a perfect show for exactly this time in the world. Because yeah, it? um, it's absolutely empty and meaningless. Nothing matters. There's a trophy, but no, there's no prize. Mm. It's just, who is it? Let's find out. Yeah. And let's use it as an excuse to, I think the other night we had a, an eight foot tall sloth on stage and in 90 seconds she did, three costume changes there was pyro there was a confetti drop um and and a key change in 90 seconds and the amount of money that they poured into that 90 seconds of production for that music show that music piece was just like no one's making tv like this yeah. that's just amazing that like hey we can do this show and then, but we're going to need six dancers and it's cost going to cost us five grand to make the costumes for these six dancers which will be on screen for 32 bars Yes, do it. Isn't it weird, like, when you simplify that concept, like, I don't want to hang shit on other reality shows, but, like, the, the X Factor, the voice, they've, especially the last couple of years, the ratings haven't been as great as, as I imagine the networks would have liked. It's the for, everyone knows that formula, that concept. And like you just said, there's switch over to Channel 10, all right, so there's an eight-foot slop on stage, and you've got to guess who it is. And that absolutely blows the ratings out of the fucking water. Sure. You've flipped it entirely. Yeah, it is because the, the thing is with all those other shows and the shows that I like, Australian Idol, which I started on and on network television here in Australia, um, it was anonymous people trying to be famous and this is the opposite. It's famous people trying to be anonymous and it's great. It's so great. Yeah. I had, um, I think Adam Lambert was on the podcast early this year and he was kind of saying the idea of those traditional shows might not work today purely when it comes down to something like social media that you know you can release a song on on soundcloud in an hour you and i could write a song right now and put it up on youtube if we wanted to the yeah. idea of, of finding fame through that traditional format of you know sing in front of a professional panel and and go through a whole process is kind of dated it wouldn't work in 2020 well no because now the business has changed the music industry has completely changed from when uh, those shows first came into the prominence all right because you were essentially auditioning for the gatekeeper you were essentially auditioning for the person from the record company who was the one that said yes or no who could mm therefore give you the keys to the city and be the one to propel you because they were the only one that had the distribution to get you in, in, in front of that many eyeballs and ear holes. Now that gatekeeper, we don't, this gatekeeper doesn't exist that, and there's no money to be made in selling a unit of music anymore, mm. uh, uh, which has completely changed how, how it works. I think there's a extraordinary songwriter by the name of Aloe Black, um, I need a dollar, dollar. That was his big hit. But he also, he wrote uh, Avicii's Wake Me Up When It's Yeah, of course. Right? He wrote an article, I think it was for Rolling Stone. I think it was for Rolling Stone. He wrote an article about Spotify's business model. And this was his experience. And I don't know if it's changed since, but I might get the numbers wrong, but it was something like that song had 156 million streams on Spotify, that Avicii song. Mm-hmm. Would you like to guess the size of the royalty check that Aloe Black got, the man that wrote it? I have no idea the math behind streaming. So a million. Lower. 100,000. Lower. 50,000. Lower. 20,000. Lower. 5,000. Only slightly higher. $8,600. 156 million streams. So I ask you, in any business, where's the incentive for creativity? 
Where's the where's the yeah. incentive? That song was an absolute fucking loot smash hit. It was everyone's year twelve soundtrack video, sound video for everyone's year twelve soundtrack that year. Hundred fifty six million streams, right? If this was the old days and we were getting paid mechanical royalties, Hello Black's never flying commercial again the rest of his life. All right, eight thousand dollars, and you can bet like one hundred fifty six million streams. Do the maths. If one percent of those people were paying Spotify customers, all right, as one point five million people paying ten bucks a month, yeah. Eh, Come on, guys. Yeah. You know, it's um, so the business model of the creation of music has completely changed. So a show like that requires you to impress the gatekeeper no longer works. So, which is why, you, you know, which is why we've got what we've got. You know, we've got this really silly show, which has people who are already famous. Um, and in our experience uh, last year, as many people who were famous through the channels that you mentioned through YouTube, et cetera. Um, and we're just trying to guess their voices, um, which for me, that's a really great way to get music back on telly because I love that there's music on telly mm-hmm. and it's a great way to get the stakes in there as far as the stakes are high to, because they, you know, they're all competitive. They want to be the one that gets their head taken off last. That's yeah. fun. Yeah. I mean, touching on two things that you said before, the, the whole model of the, of the music business has changed and you love seeing music back on TV. Obviously, you know where I'm going with this. In July, we all say goodbye to some of Foxtel's big channels, including Channel V, which you were obviously a monumental part of. Yeah. When you first got that news that V was was wrapping it up, what, what was going through your head? Well, we, it's not like we didn't see it coming. You know, the moment that YouTube, you know, it's this confluence of things. It was a confluence of mobile data plans getting larger and cheaper the screen quality on a, on a phone getting better, the internet speeds getting higher, the access to mobiles being cheap enough that uh, teenagers could be, have them bought for them by their parents or could afford them on their own gig. Mm. Um, th- plus the ability for YouTube to be able to upload HD, um, I think around 2008, uh, the writing was on the wall. You know, it's like, oh, I, there's no need for a request show anymore. Because I can watch my, um, <laughs> I can I can watch my new Cardi B Megan The Stallion video as many times as I want <laughs> on my phone. Yeah, I don't have to fax a TV channel and ask them to play because I want to see it and hopefully tape it. And once that, once because we were the gatekeeper, all right, we were the gatekeeper, and now there's no gatekeeper, and so um, we knew it was coming. And that the fact that they lasted this long, I'm pretty impressed with. You know, I really, I really am. Um, but it was, you know, it, it, it was, we knew it, it was not like it wasn't a surprise, um, to be, have been a part of something that was so culturally significant for a, a generation of Australians is an incredible honor. And I want you to know for every one person that you may be familiar with on camera, there are 15 people off camera who, uh, use that time. Like if, if my career arc is anything to go by, just imagine my career arc, but off camera. All right. There are people now who are moguls in this industry because of the time they, you know, and they started at Channel V. I'm talking people who have like seen like big, big letters in front of their names <laughs> in front of that big companies. Um, but that's where they started. You know, they all started there and, and there was a lot of us. There was a lot of us that managed to take control and, and use that time to just experiment and have fun. And um, it's never going to happen again. And I can't, be more grateful for the time that I had there and um, the experience of being a part of it for so long. I think of all people that were involved in that, 
I was thinking about this the other day, just watching Danny Clayton go from what he was to what he is now as a, as a, as a true honor. And he literally grew up in front of our eyes and in front of all of our eyes. And he's just such an extraordinary man. Um, and yeah, he works so damn hard. And look, when you start in cable, you can do anything because you have to do everything. <laughs> and so it's, it was an extraordinary time. But that's not to say that, you know, that's not going to happen again. It's just a, whatever platform it is will show up um, and there'll be enough uh, incentive for enough people to invest enough money in taking advantage of whatever that platform is. In this case, it was cable television. Um, and it'll, there'll be another great little microcosm, a little bubble of people that will all be working together and creating something new and bold and exciting within the confines of this new platform, wherever it is. I mean, we were, we weren't even 1080p. We were like probably 720 and four by three, you know, we were, you know, it wasn't the technology we were dealing with was, we were still using digi beaters. We're still using tape for goodness sake. Um, you know, it'll happen again. And I think, it's it's not the technology that will create the new explosion. It will be the group of people that stick together and move together as this, you know, they move and, and adapt as this technology moves and adapts. And it's, it's within that collaborative environment, which is where the real exciting stuff happens. And um, it'll happen again. This just, just probably won't be on television. Mm. Man, I'm, I'm going to fanboy for a moment because it's, fuck it, it's my podcast and I can do it. I remember like getting Foxtel for like the first time, maybe like 99, 2000, 2001, Oh yeah, and and, and, watch, and watching you on V, you in particular. I mean, I would have been fucking eleven at the time. So mm. I was like, guy with the ponytail. That's what I want to fucking do. Like, <laughs> you just looked like you were not only having so much fun, but that word you said, gatekeeper. Like, you were the go-to guy. If I wanted to to hear about my new favorite bands or songs or whatever, you were the guy I always want to switch on and watch. But then, not only that, those moments, those crazy like. Think about it now. If I pitch this in 2020, I'm sure I'll get fired. You know, the, the, the segment you did with Blink-182 where you had like the, the nude run through the studio, Robbie Williams just grabbing Yumi Steins and, and making out with her. Like if we were doing this podcast in person and you kissed me, I would be like, hang on a second. This is, this is weird. A lot of people don't understand that. She, that was her idea. And she yeah, told, yeah, him, yeah, sure. told him off camera. All right. It's not like he just grabbed her. Oh, before it, you mean. Yeah, it was her idea and, and... Is that she, an industry seeker or is that very public knowledge? Huh? Is that an industry seeker or is that very public knowledge? It's mostly public knowledge. It's not like he just walked out and laid his lips upon this, sure. you know, this unsuspecting woman. Um, yeah. She'd had a word to him off camera. Yeah, um, right. Okay. And yeah. But it was... Um, yeah, it, it, it was an it's extraordinary time. Uh, it was an extraordinary time. But like, it's not to say that won't happen again, man. You know, it's not to say that... You know, I, I think there is a great, there's a great value in uh, surrendering to what's happening right now. You know, and uh, you know, the the idea that content is king, and the you know the if you make if you build it, they will come. You know, that's the thing that I think will have to be the. That's the only differential right now. If you've got a phone, you can have a YouTube channel. You can be a Twitch star. That's it. You know, you don't have anything more. It's like there was a time when if you wanted to be, you know, I, I can buy a, a Gibson Les Paul, but it doesn't make me Eric Clapton or what's a guitar player that's kind of, I could buy a, you know, I could buy a Fender, but it doesn't make me Eddie Van Halen. I could buy, I could buy a D, I could buy a, a set of decks and it doesn't make me, you know, I don't know, 
Skrillex. You know, I've got this fucking keyboard here, right? That doesn't make me Skrillex because I've got a little Elisa's keyboard. It's the ideas, all right? So you can have all the gear. Well, the line is, you know, all the gear, no idea. You can have all this stuff. But there was a time when there was a barrier to entry, all right, that was cost. To buy that stuff cost money. And so only a few people could afford it. But now the democratization of the ability and the access to the, the platforms, if you've got a phone, you can be a YouTube star. Mm-hmm. That's it. The only thing that sets you apart from Casey Neistat is your ability to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And that's the same that goes for a Twitch streamer or the same that goes to anyone, you know? And so that's for me, what's really exciting is like, okay, the only thing that matters is how well you connect with your audience and the fundamental concepts of storytelling of um, setup, conflict and resolution, the fundamental concepts of tension and release, the fundamental concepts of uh, enrolling your audience and rewarding your audience are the things that will rise to the top and telling interesting stories that relate and resonate with people. Mm. That's what will be fascinating as we move forward. And I think it's really interesting. It's a really interesting time. I think what made you so relatable, especially watching you in the channel B days was that you were so relatable. You were, you were very easy to watch. It wasn't, it didn't look like you were reading off a teleprompter or, or trying to impress anyone. You were just this really relatable, fun guy. So for people who may have, have read your book in 2018, it's really interesting to note that that's where you felt most comfortable was in front of a camera. But yeah, yeah and for those who have read the book, we know that you were pretty anxious in school. You were bullied at school. How do you go from being the kid that gets picked on to, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll jump in front of the camera and, and be watched by lots of people. Oh, it was really easy. Cause when I'm on stage, I'm the one in control. Right. You know, so I just chased being on stage and at first that was being in bands and then uh, that became radio and radio became television. Um, yeah. Because when I'm on stage, I'm the one in control. I'm the one that, everyone else is quiet. I'm the one talking. I'm the one that's got my voice amplified. You're the one that has to be quiet. I know what happens next and I get to say what happens next. And so I chased that. My coping mechanism became my career. And um, I've since found better ways to deal with anxiety. (laughs) But at the time, that's kind of what I chased. And uh, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. And I'm, I've, I've spoken to a few people about that. It's mostly standups that go, Oh yeah, totally. hundred percent. It's always comedians, right? Yeah. Yeah. So totally like, um, cause they're like, yeah, yeah. When I'm up there, like I'm, 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 I'm the one in charge mm-hmm. and it's a great sense of, oh, what was it? Um, uh, f- for whatever he has said in the past about whatever he has said, Barry Humphreys, AKA, um, uh, David. Dame, Ed- Dame Edna and, um, uh, Les, 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 can't remember his name. Anyway, someone asked him, what's it like when you're on stage in front of 3000 people? He goes, Oh, alone at last. You know, yeah. <laughs> true. I'm, I'm missing like the cure were in Australia a couple of years ago. And like Robert Smith, who is notoriously uh, very awkward and anxious and just doesn't like being interviewed. He doesn't like talking to people in general. You put him in front of 40,000 people and he'll play for three and a half hours. And in between songs, he might like just lean to the mic and go, thank you. And that's it. But hmm. Let, let him sing and let him play and he's completely comfortable. It's such a weird contrast. Well, but that's, well, that's off, it's often the case, mate. It's often the case. And that's, you know, that's just kind of a, it's a gig that attracts um, certain kinds of people and certain kinds of people's coping mechanisms are uh, tickled or amplified by, by the job, you know, and I'm sure that's the same 
you know, there's certain kinds of people that are attracted to politics, certain kinds of people that are attracted to finance, certain kinds of people that are attracted to truck driving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their particular personality means they go, oh, great, seven hours drive between here and Rockhampton. Finally, can't wait. Then they might be right into it. You know, they might be like, fuck yeah, I love it. I'm getting into it. It's my favorite. Yeah, you know, other people that are like, no, I have to be around others. That's fine. We all have our thing. Yeah. I mean, we talking about that book, obviously it came out in 2018. You did a big promo tour for it. Um, how are you feeling now as far as that all kind of being available for everyone to see or read about? I'm really grateful, actually. The, actually, the book did so well, I put out a second edition, which is out right now. And it's a... It's, um, there's more chapters. I wrote some more stuff. There's stuff from me. And there's also, you know, very importantly, there's stuff from my wife who wrote a whole bunch about what it's like to live with someone who's got a different brain and someone who can get hijacked by decisions that are kind of made by a a not well part of their brain. Mm. And so that, I mean, that's a big deal in our country to have a second edition of a book come out. It's like, thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that. Um, no, I'm really grateful because, the only reason I got better, um, the only reason I was able to get sober and then, you know, the only reason I was able to get better was in hearing other people's stories, people who had been where I was and where, where I wanted to be. And so I'm just grateful that I had the chance to pass that on and, and put that into the, into the universe, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, it's, thank you for, for trying to normalize the conversation because I forget who said it but they, they were talking about mental health as well. And they say like, if you break your ankle, do you walk on it or do you go get help for it? The brain is exactly the same. It's totally. It's exactly the same. Exactly the same. And we wouldn't begrudge someone at work who's like, oh, look, mate, I've got, I was born with type 1 diabetes. So I appreciate that there's a birthday cake here today, but I can't have any. Mm. All right, no worries, man. You know, it's the same with me. It's like, hey, we're all going out for drinks. appreciate that, but I'm not going to come with you. Mm. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Was... Was the move to LA and tell me the years here because I'm not sure of, if I've got the years right. It was post Oz Idol that you made the move to LA to do the show back into Australia, right? I had been living in America since 2005 mm-hmm. from, but whenever Idol wasn't on. Gotcha. So when Idol wasn't in production, which was about eight months of the year, I was in America. So I was living in America for eight months a year from 2005. And um, I moved there full time in 2009. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's when I started the radio show back for Australia. Yeah. I might be asking selfishly because I was meant to move to LA in May before yeah. COVID started. Yeah, bad idea, man. Really? Bad. Yeah. What, what? <laughs> there's, nothing, there's no work. There's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> nothing's happening. <laughs> so you just came back purely because there was nothing going on over there? No, no, no. no. It was, a, it was a, a confluence of factors. You know, it's many things. Um, I had been very sick and I was, you know, on the pathway to getting better. And I thought, you know, I was, when I was really sick, I was quite afraid that I was going to get committed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did not want to be committed uh, on mental health grounds in America. Um, you're probably all very aware now because there's so much news about it, about the um, failures of the American healthcare system, of which there are many. I mean, if you've got money and insurance, it's fine. If you don't, good fucking luck. Yeah. Um, and that is a horrible, horrible truth. Mm. And I did not want to be committed. I did not want to end up in the uh, mental health system in America. And I had also met Audrey in Georgia and I, you know, kind of already fallen in love with Audrey and, 
you know, there was, you know, nowhere that I would rather be than I, I was over there working. Um, the TV had changed. I, um, I, I knew TV had changed when I started missing out on jobs. It was fine when I didn't get a job for a big shiny floor show when I lost it to somebody else who was good at shiny floor shows. That was fine. I understood that. But when I started losing a job to someone who'd just won a gold medal in gymnastics or a wrestler, I'm like, oh, right. You don't even care that they can hold down a live show. You don't care that they know how to juggle, you know, a chainsaw, an apple and a live baby at the same time, which is live television. You only care that they're pretty famous, right? That's it. I'm never, it's not going to happen again. And I know it'll come around again, but I just started losing jobs to people who were famous for other things. I'm like, that's it. I'm not going to get hired on camera again. And I just saw all the jobs going to those people. So I started development and I started moving, you know, to creating TV formats and things like that. And so I was pushing really hard, but, and I was developing all the time. I was taking meetings all the time and I got pretty close on a couple of things. A few things got up and, you know, I started developing a few formats as we were talking about before, but I'd already met Audrey in Georgia and, you know, jumping around the living room with G, you know, playing dance, dance revolution or whatever. I'm like, there's no TV gig in America that is as much fun as this. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that America has that is as good as hanging out with Audrey and this beautiful kid. Mm. And then I, I, I got back to America for what I thought was going to be another season of pitching. And that's when Trump uh, announced, they announced that he was going to be the Republican nominee. And I'm like, I don't want to live in a country where he's won. And I don't want to live in a country where he's lost. So I'm like, that's it. I'm done. Yeah. I'm out. And so, you know, gave back my green card, said, thanks very much. And I returned to a land of free healthcare and it's amazing. <laughs> so what, what do you have in the pipeline outside of Mars Singer? Can you even have a pipeline given the man? Yeah. Oh mate, look, that's the thing. You know, you've got to understand that. And my old manager in America, John Ferreter, who's a legend of the um, uh, reality or non-scripted as they call it there world. John, he said two things that always stuck with me. One, only you know how hard you've worked to make your dreams come true, which is true. Um, and the other one, he said, unless you host the news, whatever show it is, I don't care how big a hit it is, one day it's going to get cancelled and you need to be ready for that day. Mm. And he's right. Every single show ever has been cancelled at one point. It's been cancelled, all right? And, or will get cancelled, that's it. So I'm always... You know, there's a bunch of stuff on the boil. I have like a, what is it, like a 50, uh, a 50, 30. Well, no, what is it? What would I call it? It's like a, a 50, 25, <laughs> 10, 5 rule. 50% of my time is working on the thing that's paying the rent right now. Yeah. Oh, Christ. Got to figure out how to stop that happening. Um, 50%, like, sorry, I put on things on airplane mode, but FaceTime still comes through and I, I, I don't know how to make it not work. Um, 50% of the time is working on the thing that I'm working on that's paying the rent right now, um, uh, or the main gig. 25% is, okay, what's the year from now? 10% is the what's five years from now. 5% is the, okay, what's 10 years from now? And it's really, really, really important to do that. So half of my time is the telly stuff that you see. 25% of my time is other stuff like podcasts and um, creating, you know, things like that. 15% of the time is what's next year. You know, what's, what am I going to do? You know, creating formats and putting formats together. And then there's the other thing, which is like a real big 
blue sky stuff, which might be in, you know, uh, reading or studying or taking, you know, further education in a particular thing that I'm, you know, I'm 46 now. So what am I going to do when I'm nearly 60? Mm. So, you know, what's that? And it's really important that you compartmentalize that time, make time because I started bachelor eight years ago. I was in my thirties. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's the thing, you know, at, at some point every show is going to get canceled and you've got to be ready for it because you will have got yourself into financial and, and personal commitments that require that level of, you know, income and whatever to continue. And I've got kids, man. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to, sorry, honey, I've got to pull you out of school because dad lost his job and I didn't think of it. I don't know what I'm going to do now. So no, you've always got to think of that stuff. You always got to think of that stuff. Have you, so, have you had that concept since like early days in channel V? Were you always thinking of what's coming after channel V? No, I had to lose everything uh, and get divorced, unemployed, and, and eventually get sober before I realised that. Couple of steps then. <laughs> so yeah, I was unemployed before Bachelor. I was had I was you know, I was totally unemployed. I was nearly forty years old, unemployed. Yeah, that was terrible. Wait, who was? What was his name? Sorry, Tate. Have I got his name right? Stephen Tate. T A T. Yeah, right. Was that a call that came out of the blue? Had you guys been staying in touch? No, and that's the thing. Um, I am a firm believer. Every time, every big break in my career has happened um, because I swam out to the boat. I didn't wait for it to come into dock. Whether that be my job in radio, my job at Channel V, um, you always have to, no one's going to walk down your driveway and knock on your front door and offer you a job. You've got to be out there and let them know that you're there. Mm. So... I was unemployed. I, as I said, I was just hanging around Los Angeles and Venice, just pitching, 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 just trying to create my way out of this hole. Right. Mm. And one of the shows that I created was a dating show. And I was down in Australia for my cousin's wedding. And while I was down here, I organized some pitch meetings uh, and I pitched around to the networks, this particular dating show and channel 10 bought this dating show in the room. Uh, which is amazing that they bought this format. Mm. And so we started pre-production on this format and I was like, yeah, look, I'm living in LA and I, I want to come down here and I want to like shoot for about 10 weeks. And I think dating is really ready to come back to prime time. And this is how I want to do it. And here's the show and blah, blah, blah. So we started working on this dating show about six weeks went by and they called up and we'd, you know, we've been taking two meetings a week, putting this show together and about six weeks went by. And then one of the execs called up and said, Oh, Look, I know you want to come down here for about 10 weeks. I, I know you want to do a dating show. We just got The Bachelor. <laughs> would, you like to host, would you like to host that? So I probably wasn't anywhere near their radar, but I worked to be sure that they knew I was around, that I was on the front foot, that I was proactive, that I was busy. I was, you know, top of mind because I was, you know, around the executive teams. They knew that they were, you know, developing this particular format that I'd created and they went, look, we've already, we just bought bachelor. We got the rights for bachelor. Um, we know you got this dating show, but would you like to do this other one? It's had some sex over success overseas. And I said, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that, that's the thing, man. You've always got to create, you've got to keep creating. You've got to, you've got to create your work. Work begets work. Mm. Work begets work. No one's, no one's going to come and ask you to, can you come please be, really successful no you just got to keep working until you become undeniable and then you can't be denied do you have any interest in going back to a, 
a style of interviewing bands or actors or are you very much content being the host of the show whatever that may be um i get my interviewing hit with my podcast i'm at like 350 something episodes now i have great conversations all the time on my show sometimes they go up for two hours so i'm getting my you know, and I don't, ha- I don't bow down to anybody. I don't have to take an ad break. I don't have to not talk about certain things. You know, we talk about everything on my show. Um, we're getting heaps of listens. The podcast's going great. Um, so I really get my interviewing hit doing that. And frankly, they're the interviews I always wished I could have done. And they, uh, it's the show I wished I could have made when I was in radio. And it's, it's really, it's great. I'm enormously satisfied by doing that. But I would say to you, you know, like I said, I'm 46. I started in telly. 21 years ago, why would I want to do the thing that I was doing when I was 25? Sounds everybody, good. you know, everybody wants to grow and move and change in their job. Um, there's very few people who are 46 who are doing exactly the same role they were doing when they were 25. And if they were, you'd be like, dude, like why did everyone else get promoted? But you, <laughs> yeah, um, sure. and so that's the same thing. You know, my, my career path, my career arc involves level ups and, you know, times for me to go, okay, I feel like I've done enough of that. I'm going to go and try something else now. And that's, you know, most people's career arcs have that. And um, just mine's a little more prominently visual, I think, in some ways. Mm. Well, I think we should leave it there, honestly, because that is a perfect note to wrap it up, man. Um, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. That's Um, And I know you're not going to tell me much about The Masked Singer, but it's back on 10 on Monday. Can we say that, Enjoy the show. (laughs) Super fun. Best suits in telly. (laughs) I should thank you so much, man. See you later, Neil. Bye, mate. Thanks, man.